This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week, after lockdown delays and lots of uncertainty, the pointy end of the America's Cup got underway and it pulled the big crowd free to air on TVNZ. But TV3 pulled its biggest crowd for a quarter of a century with the Rogue Royals orchestrated by Oprah for over an hour and a half. Just be yourself. Just be genuine. Just be authentic. Just go and do what... Well, listen, if you get it wrong, you get it wrong. If you get it right, you get it right. Those revelations were a big deal for the Brits and those really interested in the rich, famous and royal. But was there much for our media to make a meal of? These things get talked up quite a lot, like, oh, it is going to be the interview of the century. But I can tell you that this is something you don't want to miss and there's so much to unpack in it. Turned out there was more unpacking than a Princess Di shopping trip to Harrods in our media after that interview. But first today, we'll hear from the National Party's broadcasting and media spokesperson who's put our public broadcasters and agencies on notice about bias and biting the hand that feeds, all against the backdrop of political claims that cancel culture is at work in our media. The estate for Dr Zeus has made a public call. It'll keep publishing his books. But it won't publish them all. Six different titles will no longer be dispersed. Is it a reasonable reaction or cancel culture at its worst? (laughs) That was Jack Tame on his News Talk ZB show last weekend, and he was far from the only one in the media summing up the Dr Seuss so-called censorship saga with a Seuss-style rhyme this past week. And Jack Tame went on to answer his own question about cancel culture like this. Of course, there are now like plenty of people who say that this is an open-shut case of books being banned. It's not. No censor has stepped in and said that children can't read Dr. Zeus titles. There isn't a Zeusian bonfire being lit outside of Wellington's poor public library. No, they're just going to not continue to publish a few of his books. And having made the point that any cancelling going on was only by the estate of Dr Seuss himself, Jack Tame returned to Seussian rhyme for his wind-up. The problem with the culture wars is everything becomes a fight. If Dr Seuss were alive today, he'd say this issue isn't black and white. In the author's mighty legacy, this is just a little quirk. Regardless of whether those books caused much offence, they weren't the doc's best work. Well, that saga certainly was subsumed into the raging culture wars in the US, according to Boston Globe culture critic Ty Burr. The announcement was a godsend for Fox News, talking heads like Tucker Carlson and the mad-as-hell conservative Twittersphere. The move represents at least a week's worth of ginned-up fury at a culture that's moving carefully and with forethought to a world more welcoming to people unlike them. But what Ty Burr called careful moves towards a more welcoming world in the US were condemned by critics using one word which we're hearing more and more of in our politics these days, woke. Not everyone here was just brushing off those six Dr Seuss titles being eased out of the catalogue. Last week, NewsHub reported that the National Party's Taranaki King Country MP, Barbara Kuriga, had posted a Seuss-style rhyme on Facebook taking aim at would-be censors, and it began like this. Alas, they've come for Dr Seuss. They wish to hang him with a noose. They claim his tales were racist bent. They judged him fast, missed what he meant. Barbara Kuriger later said she'd copied that poem from a friend and then she took it down from her Facebook feed. But noting that the controversy seemed to have sent Dr Seuss titles to the top of the Amazon sales charts, Nationals MP for Tamaki, Simon O'Connor, told his Twitter followers and his Facebook fans that it was a marvellous and welcome up yours to the woke censors. 
but seeing as the books selling weren't actually the ones that were going out of print, well, the money would actually be rolling into the estate of Dr. Seuss and his publishers, the so-called censors in the first place in this case. But why were National Party MPs getting worked up about an issue like this from overseas anyway? Well, writing for the spin-off this week, former National Party Press Secretary and current PR consultant Ben Thomas reckoned that a war on cancel culture was not a winning political strategy for the party. He also noted that the leader, Judith Collins, had accused the government lately of cancelling talk radio hosts like Peter Williams and Mike Hosking, when in fact they'd merely cancelled its weekly appointments with them. But last week, Stuff reported National Party pollster David Farrer, who's also a prominent political pundit too, had told a meeting of National Party members, including some MPs, that the party could win support by taking a stand on cancel culture issues. Now, Farrer's followers on social media already knew about that discussion because David Farrer put out a plea on Twitter for examples that he could share at that meeting, like J.K. Rowling copping a backlash over transphobia or, in his words, faulty towers being banned though many of 227 Twitter replies pointed out that he was faulty about John Cleese's classic comedy being banned. Now, David Farrer didn't tell Stuff what was actually said at that National Party meeting, but Stuff reported Topor MP Louise Upston as saying her constituents had become increasingly worried about cancel culture. And she was worried about that too at last week's annual reviews of the two state-owned broadcasters, RNZ and TVNZ. As we heard on Media Watch last weekend, Louise Upston asked the Chief Executive of Radio New Zealand this question. How will you ensure the views that might not be popular um, or politically correct are still provided to the public who are entitled to a view? Um, And would you sack someone who dared to have a view that wasn't politically correct? Paul Thompson replied that the political views of staff don't come into it and RNZ's people are required to be impartial and independent and ensure coverage is balanced, fair and impartial. To which Louise Upston replied, I think some would challenge that. And one of those might be her colleague, the MP for Tamaki, Simon O'Connor. After the government announced last month that $55 million of public money would be available to the government's broadcasting funding agency New Zealand On Air to pay for more public interest journalism, Simon O'Connor told the chief executive of the Ministry for Culture and Heritage he feared that all this new money would make the media unwilling to bite the government hand that fed them. Laying my cards on the table, I'm uncomfortable that the Crown is funding a fourth estate and the suspicion that more cash for journalism from the government might compromise the news media was also aired by National's Melissa Lee in last week's select committee sessions. The National Party broadcasting spokesperson asked RNZ's boss this. Would RNZ be prepared to challenge, critique and even call for the resignation of the government or ministers at the risk of losing access to the Public Interest Journalism Fund? And after that, TVNZ's chief executive Kevin Kenrick faced this question from Melissa Lee. So the question was, if a minister or the prime minister threatened to actually pull your public interest journalism funding, would you run the story, is the question. 100%. And Melissa Lee then repeated those worries on David Farrer's Kiwi blog under the headline, Fourth Estate for a Price? And she added this. We also need to have a frank discussion about media independence. When too many people talk about red radio on one side and wanting to see key media and public figures deplatformed in private media on the other, we are at an impasse as New Zealanders decide on what we agree should be allowed on the air and actually whether we want it taxpayer-funded. 
And Melissa Lee knows all about awkwardness arising from claims of conflicts of interest between politicians and publicly funded media. She formerly ran a production company which made TV shows for TVNZ, which were funded by New Zealand On Air, even after she became an MP in 2008, which attracted the interest of the Campbell Live show at the time. Tonight, the government MP using government money to make TV. Melissa Lee is both a National Party List MP and the National Party's candidate in the upcoming Mount Albert by-election. She also owns the television production company that makes Asia Down Under for TVNZ. Asia Down Under is funded by New Zealand On Air and that's taxpayer money. Do you think it's appropriate that your company receives government funding? Uh, the company has received funding every year for uh, 13 years. I don't know why it becomes an issue now. New Zealand On Air has for years now funded journalism on both state-owned and private networks, but that's one of few conflict of interest controversies that's emerged about the public funding of the media. On Kiwi Blog, Melissa Lee said all this was an elephant in the room that the media won't talk about, so this week I talked about it with her. We hope that journalism in New Zealand is in fact independent and that there's transparency and there have been instances where some of these transparency issues were highlighted um, in the previous term of uh, Parliament where a minister had diaried meeting that wasn't actually disclosed. And, you know, there was some murkiness. And I think it, it brought to light some of the concerns that people actually have in terms of the transparency issue and the independence issue. So you're, you're talking about, sorry to interrupt you, but you're talking about RNZ's former head of news, Carol Hirschfeld, meeting the former Minister of Broadcasting, Claire Curran, in a kind of off-the-diary meeting? Well, it was diaried, but um, uh, it was rather obscure as to how it was diaried and uh, what happened uh, for that meeting and how the Minister never disclosed the fact that she met with um, uh, Carol Hirschfeld. But why does that compromise the editorial independence of any media? And, and why does that cast a shadow over uh, the Minister's plans to release uh, over three years $55 million more to a range of, of media companies? When media um, is getting funding, you have to actually sort of ask the question, you know, can the media uh, do their duty in exposing the, um, let's say, if there were problems uh, in government or ministers, if there were um, things that should not happen, does in fact happen, can the media honestly actually say, can they bite the hand that feed them? Well, you very specifically asked both Radio New Zealand and Television New Zealand last week in those annual reviews, would they effectively pull their punches on a story that was difficult for the government if they felt their funding was at risk? And they said, of course, they wouldn't. Do you believe that either this has happened or this would happen? Any time there's actually huge amounts of money that is funding is actually going into media, you, you sort of have, I think you have to be concerned if ultimately it is the hand that feeds them. But where where are you seeing this? Which which organisation can? I think I see it all over the place. I mean, it's not like I only listen to Radio New Zealand or just watch TV and Z. I switch, you know, TV and Z. Um, uh, I I watch TV three. I I, I read um, um, stories from the Herald um, staff, um, you know, news up everything. And, and you, it doesn't happen all the time, but you know, you can actually certainly see uh, that the stories were not um, uh, fulsome. You seem reluctant to name an actual example or anything that sticks in your mind. <laughs> so it's hard for the audience to picture what it is that, that concerns you. Um, well, I don't want to name and shame. I mean, I, I am still a politician and they will obviously write stories about me in the future. And I don't think I should name and shame. I think, look, 
in all, I, I, I am a former journalist, come on, and I respect the journalists uh, who actually work in this space, and I, it is very difficult. Can they bite the hand that feed them? I mean, you know, it's always the case. Can, can journalists, I mean, this is a question I often put to journalists, even at Radio New Zealand. I mean, can you do stories about something that's going wrong uh, with Radio New Zealand? And I have to say I'm very proud of the journalists, particularly to, um, to the ones here, um, you know, uh, the political journalists who actually uh, did stories about Radio New Zealand when Claire Curran and um, um, Carol Hirschfeld issue actually hit. And I have to say that they were very responsible and I have to say, I've, I was very proud of them. You say we're at an impasse about this. I mean, I wonder, like right now, there's a lot of debate, commentary in the media pointing out that in, in your political party, there seems to be an appetite for taking on wokeism, talking about culture wars and so on. Is your effort to sort of pick at the, and, and, and highlight potential areas of bias in the media a part of this? Is it a political strategy right now? It's not a political strategy at all. I haven't actually discussed what I actually uh, wrote on the uh, blog with um, my colleagues or anything. I, I just wrote something and I just thought I'll share it with, um, with Kiwi Blog. Are there specific broadcasts is... or programs, you know, that, that have concerned you, that you say you, you think were biased? I, I'm not going to name names or, 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 or programs, but I think, you know, there is actually a, a perspective out there in, in, in New Zealand, I think, that a lot of people will actually think that some programs are actually skewed left or skewed right or they have particular leanings. Uh, there is this uh, public journalism um, funding to the tune of $55 million. Who is, in fact, going to get the funding and who are, in fact, the journalists? Because government money doesn't just stop at real, you know, like people who have journalism degrees or, or entities that I actually see, deem as uh, a media outfit. You know, that there are some uh, who you may actually call blogs who are actually getting funding from government. Are they, in fact, real journalists? I think they're, you know, do we need to sort of institute a real definition of what a journalist is? Well, when there were these concerns raised about whether this new funding would be at arm's length, the minister said, when it was his turn to speak, look, it's, the funding is administered by New Zealand on air. It is at arm's length from politicians and from the government. I mean, you and your Kiwi blog post were talking about politicisation of the New Zealand on air board uh, and, for that matter, other public media agencies. Concerns are being raised New Zealand on air isn't funding or interested in funding um, uh, all partisan spheres. Who, who are the politicised members of New Zealand on air's board? You know, government boards uh, often are appointed by the government of the day and often uh, they're not necessarily, um, you know, subject experts in the field. They're often government appointees. Is it right that we should actually look at the way the boards are actually appointed? In terms of the bias, I mean, you know, I'm not criticising New Zealand on air. I think New Zealand on air in general actually does an amazing job with the with the kind of um, numbers of staff that they actually have and and the work that they do is actually you know are really really good. I uh, what I was actually talking about and the um, the engagement that I've actually had with the CEO was in particular I was rather concerned about um, a documentary about a, a particular politician that actually ran uh, during um, the election cycle. I think that is actually wrong. I mean, which was that documentary? It was actually about Chloe Schwalbrook. It, it was around or around the election cycle, yes. Because another well-known instance of this, and there aren't that many, was back in 2011 when uh, one member of the New Zealand On Air board was Stephen McElroy, who was uh, the, I think, electorate chairman of John Key, who was prime minister at the time, and there were questions about a 
child poverty documentary that was screening just before the election on, on TV3. But you yourself have actually found yourself in this position, haven't you? You became an MP while still making programmes for uh, Television New Zealand that were funded by New Zealand On Air. You know, at the time you said, I've been doing this for 13 years, I can't see what the problem is. So have you changed your attitude to that now? No, no. And when I actually became a member of parliament, I stepped away from actually running the programme. Well, yeah, but Campbell Live at the time did a programme about how you were actually making election campaign programmes for the National Party at the time of being in the receipt of it. The, the, the Trevor Mallard at the time, who was a former Minister of Broadcasting, was saying this is no, a big violation of ethics, and it became a big issue, and you, you found yourself in exactly the position that you seem to be saying is, is a worry and that we need to be alert about right now. No, I think, and I've actually mentioned some of that in the, in the blog as well. You know, I've actually sort of, I think, put it in brackets when I actually wrote it on the blog. You can't stop people from being appointed to the board. And the question that I was actually raising was, should that, um, uh, the way that it is actually being done, uh, be looked at? So I'm starting a conversation. That's what the blog was all, um, blog was all about on Kiwi Blog. I mean, you do say in the article here, concerns are being raised that New Zealand only isn't funding or interested in public interest media from all partisan spheres. I said it feels more systematic as to whether those who New Zealand on Air work with are willing to raise those public voices. What does, does, does that, is that an, an, an allegation of bias, effectively, that New Zealand on Air is really interested in funding stuff that has a certain political leaning um, and that, that that's what you're not happy about? Uh, I think I was referring to uh, some of the documentaries uh, that I've actually mentioned. I mean, you know, whether it's actually Chloe Schwalbrick or celebration of um, you know, the prime minister, uh, why not actually? I mean, I, I think I have a problem with um, people doing, you know, documentaries close to election time of, you know, current politicians. I think, you know, if documentaries are actually done, it should be done about people who have actually uh, who are no longer members of parliament, um, you know, uh, be reflective uh, or potential politicians, but not current politicians. You have raised several questions about this in those annual reviews of RNZ and TVNZ last week. Uh, but the committee, it's been noted, um, asked very little about the issues that absolutely dominated the same committee uh, last year, which you were also a part of, which was uh, at the time the RNZ concert and youth service controversy. That was that was a live one at the time and completely unresolved. Then the wider issue of, uh, for both TVNZ and RNZ, the new public media entity to replace them both. Kind of remarkable that there wasn't a lot asked at the committee about either of those issues. Do you think there's no concern amongst... Um, the MPs on the committee. Uh, well, in terms of RNZ concert, I did actually ha- I did actually have a heck of a lot more question to actually ask uh, both the minister and Radio New Zealand. Some of that question have actually now been filed as written questions because there's a finite amount of time that you are allocated to ask questions. And in terms of the disestablishment of RNZ and um, and TVNZ for uh, the establishment of a new entity, I did actually uh, ask that question unfair for you to actually sort of say that. And um, yes, you were asking those questions, absolutely, but members of other parties weren't. And most members of the committee just didn't seem interested or or even aware of it, I would have to say. For example, uh, in the committee's last year, that issue of whether RNZ would get a frequency or not for this youth service and whether the Ministry for Culture and Heritage had been even exploring whether it should or could be released to RNZ. Here we are 12 months later, 
it, it still it didn't even come up in the committee. That's disappointing, isn't it? Mm. I guess in, in terms in terms of that, uh, partly my fault. I, I did actually have uh, a lot of questions to go through, and uh, that was um, not one of the first questions that I asked, and I should have. Uh, but thank you for making me the expert in this field because you've just said I'm the only one who's actually aware of it and be an expert in this. So uh, so I guess I have heavy shoulders. I have more questions to ask of these entities. But with that in mind, I would also ask why then, why spend so much time asking hypothetical questions about how broadcasters would react if they were confronted with a story that might damage the government rather than, um, you know, the, the, the big issues like RNZ's uh, lack of progress in its um, music and youth platforms and um, the new public media entity. Well, I guess I wanted to actually uh, take it, um, you know, get a statement from all entities that I was actually asking questions of to make sure that the $55 million that they're actually going to be receiving is, in fact, not going to influence them um, in a way that, um, you know, all of New Zealand may actually, you know, despair. Uh, in terms of Concert FM, uh, I had the question and I have actually, uh, I was requested to actually file questions that I did not get to ask at Select Committee, so I have filed them, so I look forward to the answers. You said that the, the plan for a new public media entity such as uh, has been advanced so far by the current government will end in tears. Uh, if you were in government, you were minister, you wouldn't propose a single uh, public media company? <laughs> I think I think public media. I mean, we've already got Radio New Zealand, we've already got Television New Zealand. Even with the criticism that I have of both entities, and I do sometimes criticise both entities, I think they do a great job. You know, the details are not available for me to even. Um, criticise or support at the moment. I think there's a cabinet paper that is actually going to cabinet in October. This has been going on for four years. You know, I guess I'm a little tired um, uh, of waiting to see what's going to happen. And I think, you know, I think all media, I think Radio New Zealand should be tired of waiting to see what their future is and TVNZ should be sort of tired as to what their future is going to be. Uh, There's no detail. So National doesn't have a policy on that right now? At the moment, no. One of the things that we've always actually said was that we support the plurality of voice in the media. That, you know, uh, what does one big giant public entity actually mean to the rest of the media? I mean, that's a question we need to actually ask. That was Melissa Lee, the National Party spokesperson for broadcasting and digital media. For so many of my family, what they do is there's a level of control in it, right? Yeah. Because they're fearful of what the papers are going to say about them. Yeah. Whereas with us, it was just like, just be, just be yourself. Just be genuine. Just be authentic. Just go and do what, what is necessary. If you get it wrong, you get it wrong. If you get it right, you get it right. Well, that was the artist formerly known as Prince Harry and earlier Meghan Markle chatting to Oprah Winfrey while feeding the chooks and plunging PR punches into the centuries-old institution whose monarch is still our head of state too. And in a sense, that gave all New Zealanders a real stake in what unfolded on the CBS TV network in the US on Monday and then here on Tuesday on Channel 3 when, according to its owner's discovery, more than a million of us tuned in at some point in the two-hour extravaganza and another hour of post-match analysis from three to follow. But even before the interview aired, the channel's best-known broadcasters were telling us what they reckoned. I just don't think that a family that holds these kinds of values should be the head of state of New Zealand. I just Mm. don't find that that family represents what I believe 
Aotearoa and New Zealand stands for in, 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 in 2021. Yeah. Yeah, I think I represent a large chunk of New Zealand that really just does not give us stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but while Project co-host Jeremy Corbett there clearly wasn't bothered, News Hub special correspondent Patrick Gow wanted constitutional revolution now. As Hayden Donnell now reports, he was far from the only one in our media who felt the need to tell us this week what they thought about Meghan, Harry and the UK's royals and also about a media issue much closer to home. Hosking. So 7.23 now. The Prime Minister has not been on the programme this morning and there is a reason for that. She is running for the hills. She no longer wants to be on this programme each week. Uh, the somewhat tragic conclusion that is drawn is that the question she gets, the demand for a level of accountability, is a little bit tough. That was News Talk ZB's morning host Mike Hosking announcing that Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern had decided to abandon her weekly interview on his show. As it turns out, Ardern had actually decided to leave the regular slot four weeks prior, opting to instead appear on News Talk only, in her words, as and when issues arise. No one had noticed earlier because issues had obviously arisen and she had been interviewed on News Talk twice during those weeks. Despite her continuing appearances, Hosking's revelation that Ardern was refusing to speak to him at least once every seven days sparked concern that she was allergic to proper scrutiny. One person who was especially concerned was Mike Hosking, who covered the issue in two straight instalments of his daily editorial, Mike's Minute. This is from day two. At her post-cabinet conference yesterday, she uttered something about not being able to do everything. But, of course, no-one ever asked her to do such a thing, just what each Prime Minister had managed to do for the past 30-odd years. She, she clearly isn't up to that standard. She also uttered something about reaching an audience. This is the biggest audience going. The simple truth is this. As I said yesterday, she's running for the hills because she's scared. She hates a hard question. She hates fact. She hates accountability. She hates not being fawned over. Calm and collected. Sadly, Hosking's colleague at News Talk ZB, Barry Soper, wasn't taking the news so well. He responded with a blistering, highly personal opinion piece accusing Ardern of blanching at tough questions and using COVID-19, a pandemic which has killed 2.6 million people worldwide, as her security blanket. Soper also criticised Ardern for not copying her predecessor John Key and posing for, quote, derpies with students. But he seemed even more offended she hadn't furnished him and his gallery colleagues with regular invites up to her office for social calls. Here's what he had to say. All of her predecessors got to know the parliamentary media by inviting them to their ninth floor beehive office at least a couple of times a year. It puts a human face on the public performer. Hardoon has done it once, a few months after becoming Prime Minister. The Taxpayers' Union responded to the Hosking snub with a petition for the Prime Minister to resume her weekly interview with the host. As of Friday, it had stalled at around 900 signatures, leaving it only about 376,000 short of triggering a non-binding citizens-initiated referendum. Though it got a little bit lost in all the fallout over her Hosking decision, Ardern has also opted to pull out of her regular Tuesday morning interview slot on RNZ's highest-rating show, Morning Report. But it wasn't lost on Mike Hosking. On Tuesday, he told a listener this. What wasn't reported yesterday, because sadly the show got the headlines is the fact, apparently, that Morning Report, the breakfast show of the state-run radio station, National Radio, has agreed to rearrange the Prime Ministerial schedule to allow the Prime Minister to come on the day of her choosing on the topic of her choosing. If true, and God, I hope I'm wrong, the fact they have allowed this is little short of a scandal. That prayer was answered. Hosking was wrong. 
A month ago, the same time that ZB got a call to say that Hosking's weekly slot with the Prime Minister was ending, the PM's office told RNZ that she will continue to appear at least weekly on RNZ's morning report, though not on a set day. She won't choose the topics, though. Morning Report told Media Watch they still do that. Now, Morning Report and the Mike Hosking breakfast have one thing in common. Audiences which skew heavily towards older Pākehā listeners. Those audiences may be large, but as Mihi Ngārangi Forbes noted on RNZ's The Panel, giving those shows a weekly interview with the Prime Minister gives a certain segment of the population much better access to the nation's top elected official than others. If, if Mike Hoskins wants a series of questions asked, then Barry, Barry Soper can ask those, and he asked very hard questions. Yeah, but as you know, Mihi, there's, there's a difference between asking a question of a Prime Minister in a, in a, in a gallery stand-up or in a, on, the, on the tiles and a form uh, interview. Absolutely no, place. Phil, because... Yeah. Um, we also don't get the Prime Minister to come on our show once sure. a week. We'd love that opportunity, but I guess there's only one Prime Minister and there's actually literally hundreds and hundreds of outlets these days. It's time to spread it around. What about Māori journalism? What about Asian journalism? What about Indian um, channels and radio stations, Māori radio stations? They, get, they don't get any. Forbes said she and her peers are perfectly capable of asking the Prime Minister the hard questions if given the opportunity. She has recent evidence to reinforce that claim, including this interview earlier this month, where she asked Jacinda Ardern if she owed an apology to the family of the KFC worker Case L, who contracted COVID-19. So, as you said, you know, the school was asked to take um, tests, but not all the family yeah. members were asked to um, isolate. So she didn't do anything wrong. She's now got COVID, and she's now unwell, and she's being ridiculed no online by many you people. Know. So, you know, we, we don't get everything right every time, but when we do oh. get it wrong, is it, isn't it right to apologise? Those family members were asked to be tested and to stay in isolation until they returned results, and, and that hadn't happened. They weren't tested until well late in the week. Ardern herself echoed Forbes' point in an interview with Morning Report on Tuesday. Here's how she explained her change in schedule. Last two weeks I did 21 media interviews and even then I wouldn't have touched the sides of all the different media mm. outlets. What I've tried to do is though, take a look at where you know, different audiences, often you know, the people that might listen to ZB are also consuming news out of the Herald and so on. There are some parts Okay, so who are you, which, which programmes are you going to go there. on instead? I don't do nearly as much, for instance, ethnic media. I don't do nearly as much media that cross a, a different demographics of New Zealand, and I feel like I need to do a better job of that. There's still a risk Jacinda Ardern will use her newfound free time to book more softball interviews on less newsy media outlets. But as good an interviewer as he can be, Mike Hosking isn't the only broadcaster in New Zealand capable of keeping the Prime Minister honest. If Jacinda Ardern can still be held to account while appearing before a broader cross-section of the people she's meant to represent, that sounds like a good thing. After all, she's the Prime Minister for all New Zealanders, not just the older white ones. But Jacinda Ardern's decision to snub Mike Hosking wasn't the only thing causing media meltdowns this week. Prince Harry and Meghan Markle's interview with Oprah Winfrey provoked a furious reaction from segments of the press, some of which were accused of racist and biased coverage by the formerly royal couple. The Daily Mail plastered its homepage with no fewer than 13 stories about the interview within minutes of it going to air. And even its obsession couldn't contend with that of New Zealand's most obsessive Markle watcher, Newstalk ZB's early morning host Kate Hawkesby. By the calculation of the spin-off Sam Brooks, Hawksby has written 15 articles about Markle since 2018. 
by the calculation of RNZ's Media Watch. That's more than 7,000 words about a person who almost certainly doesn't know that Hawksby exists. Her two articles on Markle's latest interview are in keeping with many of the rest, deeply personal and brimming with scorn. The first, written just prior to the interview going to air, was headlined, Disingenuous Meghan Markle Steps Back Into the Spotlight. The second, after it screened, compared Markle and Ardern, saying both are guilty of picking and choosing where they're held to account. Meanwhile, the interview was giving her partner Mike Hosking something else to have conniptions about during this busy week. I think we all see her for what she is, don't we? A sort of a shallow, self-absorbed, attention-seeking, woke, bandwagon-riding hussy. And we're better off without her. Hussy is a bizarrely personal, gendered insult to level at someone you only know through the British tabloids. But neither Hawksby nor Hosking recorded New Zealand's most callous reaction to the ex-royal interview. That dubious honour went to the Herald's head of business, Fran O'Sullivan, who had this to say to Newstalk ZB afternoon host Heather Duplissy allen Oh, God. Um, pathological all round, I think. Um, you know, I look at her and it's black deprived woman. Actually, she's half white. Let's get real about it. Brought up, you know, dad as a, um, uh, you know, white film director. Mum's uh, not. She is biracial herself. So, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, come on. Let's, let's play to all the intelligence side as well. She's had a fantastic upbringing. She's had a fantastic career. Um, you know, I, I just take it all with a great grain of salt, I'm yeah, afraid. I can see you have as much sympathy as I do. Love it. Well, well, I also think it's time Harry got over the fact of his mother's death. It was a very long time ago. So oh, move I on, know. guys. I totally yeah. agree. <laughs> My gosh, we could talk about them forever. All this seemed a little out of scope for a business editor. These reactions may have been over the top, but even they couldn't match the emotionally charged response from ITV's Good Morning Britain host, Piers Morgan. He started off the week saying Markle was lying about her mental health struggles. I'm sorry, I don't believe a word she says, Meghan Markle. Well, that's a I wouldn't believe it if she read me a weather report. And the fact that she's fired up this, this onslaught thoughts. against our royal family, I think is contemptible. That's Piers Morgan and his Good Morning Britain co-host Susanna Reid having an awkward exchange. When another of his co-hosts, Alex Beresford, criticised his speech the following day, he did this. And I understand that you've got a personal relationship with Meg Markle or had one and she cut you off. She's entitled to cut you off if she wants to. Has she said anything about you since she cut you off? I don't think she has, but yet you continue to trash her. OK. I'm done with this. No, no, no. Sorry. No. Oh, uh, Sorry. So, do you know what? That's pathetic. You can trash me, maybe not my no, own. No, no, no. See you later. I'm being... Sorry, can't this do this. This is absolutely diabolical behaviour. Again, that's Piers Morgan, derider of liberal snowflakes, walking out of the studio after being lightly criticised. He subsequently met with his bosses at ITV and decided to leave the station. If all that seemed a little contrived, it's interesting to note that Discovery, the company that owns Three, which broadcast the Oprah interview in New Zealand, is looking to set up a Fox News-esque channel in the UK and is highly interested in hiring one Piers Morgan. All these meltdowns are linked by the fact they're weird overreactions to comparatively inconsequential events. But they're also deeply personal attacks from commentators who don't really have the insider knowledge to back up their accusations. In the case of News Talk's guests and hosts, that's possibly part of a strategy. One former presenter for a station in the NZME stable told Media Watch they were regularly pulled up for adding context to their answers because they didn't make for good, strong opinion. 
Still, even if good strong opinions make for better ratings in a competitive media market, there must be ways to deliver them without carrying out fully-fledged character assassinations on people they barely know. Whether they're responding to changes in the Prime Minister's interview schedule or delivering their feelings on someone who quit the monarchy, these hosts could do with playing the ball, not the woman. Hayden Donnell there looking at the reaction and overreaction to the Harry, Meghan and Oprah show that aired on 3 last Tuesday. And earlier he looked at the fallout from the Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern deciding to cancel her weekly Monday morning interview on News Talk ZB's Mike Hosking breakfast show. Well, as you heard there, Mike Hosking was worried that RNZ had ignored the story of his show getting snubbed. Hello? Anyone home? Are the media literally asleep or just so compliant and apologetic to labour? This is now their dream scenario. However, I also discussed the issue on this week's Midweek Media Watch with Karen Hay on The Lately Show. That's on the RNZ website, the RNZ app, or our podcast feed if you missed it. And RNZ's daily podcast, The Detail, co-produced with Newsroom, also took a long look at the issue on Friday. That's available also wherever you get your podcasts. That's all we have for you from the Media Watch team this week. We'll be back again with more on the media at about 10.30 next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show and then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next Sunday here on RNZ National.